That's a terrible call. That is a terrible call. Today I'm joined by John Corrales of Mass Live, also host of the Locked On Celtics podcast. Everybody knows John, so he doesn't really need too much introduction. John, thanks for joining me today, man. <laughs> That's my pleasure. I, I think I need some introduction. Not everybody knows me. I mean, unless they're living under a rock for the last few years. <laughs> if you're a Celtics uh, fan nice and you don't know John and Jay, then uh, I don't know what you've been doing since the dawn of podcasting. <laughs> so John you put out a tweet a few days ago now that I found really interesting um, I interacted with you on the actual tweet talking about the quotation marks best five lineup mm-hmm. and what you saw once that was kind of unleashed shall we say uh, it was against Toronto right at that point yes so what did you see from that that's going to be a positive and then we'll look at what's going to be negatives afterwards and what tweets can be made well, the positive of that group is uh, on the offensive side, I mean, you've got a lot of guys that you have to guard, and uh, th- that's going to make it very difficult. There's going to be uh, – it's going to be tough to make a choice. Who do you, who do you double? Who's, who's going off? How do, you, how do you defend Kemba Walker, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Gordon Hayward, and Marcus Smart? I mean, maybe you can, you can help off of Marcus Smart and that – if you're picking your poison, like that's going to be the guy, but he's shown that at least earlier in the season that he can, he can burn you. And he's, I don't think anybody's really too worried uh, because he's a threat from three. Uh, Even if he hits, what's he shooting now? 32%. Like that's, that's fine because he's going to hit enough of them to make you pay for your defensive choices. Defensively, it's, it's mostly their switchability and it, it, it makes up for a lack of size, which is one of the negatives I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but their switchability along the front line, uh, the, the, like the, the bat in the backcourt, um, that makes it difficult for a team to really get to the rim and get what they want because there's no, no corner to turn. There's no um, opening necessarily. If everybody's on point and playing a connected style of defense, there's no um, – it everywhere you, you try to turn, be it a pick or a handoff or something like that, there's always going to be a defender square, square in your face. So that really makes hunting for a shot difficult and time-consuming. So defensively, uh, what we saw in that Toronto game when they were playing well was uh, late shot clock post-ups when they got basically a mismatch – and in, we talk about picking a poison. That's something the Celtics are going to live with all the time because you get Serge Ibaka trying to post up Marcus Smart. Okay, you know, fine. That, that's not going to happen. He's not going to finish consistently enough to, do, to, to make that really a, a problematic result. In fact, there's probably only like two or three guys in the league that will post up in that manner, uh, like Embiid or Giannis, like those level guys that are going to make it problematic. So, yeah, that was one of my biggest worries was the smaller guys on the lineup getting posted up by the opposing team's bigs. 
But as you say, if they're playing fast and smart and they're jumping on every... Because the way they've played this year so far is they're just in everybody's faces. They're rotating really well. So if they're doing that and forcing the ball out of a big man's hands due to the, the how fast their hands are. I mean, Marcus Smart's great at timing steals. Jalen Brown's done actually surprisingly well. And Jason Tatum's done well in the passing lane too. Um, it's been actually one of the most underrated yeah. things I've seen from him this year. I mean, you're usually going to get in, in uh, every game, at some point, Jason Tatum's going to get into a passing lane and either deflect it or go off for a, a breakaway. The Celtics, at their best, can, can execute this style and really negate the advantage, the size advantage. Uh, what's going to happen in every situation it, when the Celtics put that lineup out there is you're going to see teams attacking Kemba Walker. And really, it comes down to what can the Celtics do in that situation? Can they, when, in, in the examples I put out there, it was Serge Ibaka that was really trying to you know, work that pick and roll. Maybe, I think it might have been with McCaw that uh, was trying to get the switch onto Kemba. Can the guys on the perimeter make life difficult enough for that ball handler where that switch onto Kemba, the Celtics can kind of scram him out of there, and one of the bigger guys, or even Marcus Smart, but one of the bigger guys can go over there and, and guard whichever big is hunting that switch. So even if it's Giannis or Embiid, can Jalen Brown or Gordon Hayward, the bigger guys in the team in that lineup, can they go in there, Tatum, can they get Kemba out of that and go in there and, and defend and hold their ground. I mean, I think Jalen Brown is a good choice in that lineup because he's, he's pretty strong. I mean, he, he's gotten himself uh, to be pretty uh, – like uh, you look at how, how big he's, he's gotten, how uh, strong he's gotten. He's put himself in a position where obviously you're not going to guard and bead with, with Jalen Brown on a regular basis, but for a switch, for a guy that's going to – push Embiid out, get low, and, and maybe push him a little further out than, than he likes to be, Jalen in one possession here or there can, can at least have a decent shot at that. So it's about getting that mismatch that Kemba might have and, and getting him out as fast as possible and, and making whomever is getting the ball in the post, making that a difficult position, and then really not helping and doubling that because generally that, that person's going to make a, a decent pass out of there. They might try to double an Embiid, but the last time they tried that, he, he really passed the ball well out of double team. So uh, it's, it's not perfect for sure, but if they're playing at their best, there's, they have the ability to kind of handle some of these mismatches. And then as this discussion went on, after you put out your, you put out multiple breakdowns, I think there was three in total. One of the points that, uh, I don't know what to call him, a fan, um, a Twitter user, somebody in the Twitterverse put out there was, is there a chance that if they can manage to kind of hurry Kemba out of that switch, that the team then go and hunt for him again, if they've got enough time on the shot clock, at which point then it's going to be, probably hard pressed for time for the Celtics to try and hurry Kemba back out of that position again before a shot gets off. Sure. But it's going to be hard pressed for the offense to, to really get a good look. When you think about 
this is this if the Celtics are setting their defense, okay? Uh, you they've made a shot, they're getting back, they're setting the defense. The clock, the 24 second shot clock starts to work. The team even jogging it up over the court, over half court, you're starting your your offense at 29. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, 19, 18 seconds. All right, so the point guard has the ball at the top key, 19, 18 seconds on the shot clock. So by the time you hunt out that first pick and roll, you, you get Kemba's man and you force that switch. That takes like three or four seconds. So now you're at 14, 15 seconds. If the Celtics are able to scram him out and it takes two, three more seconds to kick the ball back out, okay, so let's say it's on the right side of the floor. Somebody on the left side of the floor has come over to scram Kemba out. So what are we at now? 13, 12, 13 seconds. You've got to get the ball to the other side of the floor and run another pick and roll to get Kemba into a mismatch. So let's say you do that successfully. Well, it's taken six or seven seconds just to get to this point where you're running the other pick and roll. So it's going to take another six or seven seconds to get to that point. Well, now you're at three seconds on the shot clock. And you got no choice. you got to make a move. And at that point, you put yourself at a disadvantage because now guys can help. So you swing the ball to the other side of the floor. You get the mismatch. Ball goes into the post. Now, with three seconds left on the shot clock, you can, you can help off of a guy because by the time you pass the ball out and shoot, I mean, you, have, you, you run the risk of a shot clock violation. So all of that is to say that hunting a mismatch makes sense. Hunting it a second time can be very difficult. And if the Celtics are switching and making things difficult for a ball handler, by the time that second post-up comes around, there's almost no choice but to shoot because anything else is, is going to result in a shot clock violation. And, and now you put yourself in a position where the Celtics can be aggressive in double teaming because they know that all you have is that one option. And that's going to be their their defensive mentality anyway, right? With this lineup, it's going to be more about dragging out possessions and forcing teams to take late shot clock shots in order to try and force those um, jacked up threes or rush twos because that's going to be where they're best when they're just constantly closing out passing lanes and taking the shot away and making you shoot with two, three seconds left on the clock. That's what they're aiming for with this lineup. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're trying to make the most difficult shot possible um, and or the least efficient shot possible. Um, so you want to get something going that, that's not getting to the basket. So if, you're, if, they're, if a, an offense is trying to work the ball around at the top of the key and they're doing whatever, uh, weaving, whatever it is, uh, they're not going to get downhill. And really, the most efficient way to score is getting into the paint, drawing the defenders, and kicking to somebody in like a dunker spot or kicking out to the corner for a three. If the Celtics have taken away a lot of those options and then the other option is to just dump it into a post-up, well, post-ups are really inefficient. You've seen the, the numbers kind of prove it over the course of time that 
it's not the most efficient way to score. And really only the best of the best of the best can make that an efficient type of scoring uh, option. And again, I go back to Embiid as the guy who can do that. Um, there's no Kevin McHale in there anymore. Like the league is not full of these guys who can turn the post up into something that's a guaranteed bucket. So yeah, that's, that's the goal is to get something late shot clock where your back is to the basket. So you're not even facing the basket. A defender is on you as close as he possibly can be. And generally speaking, you end up spinning and fading or something like that to, to get yourself a bucket. Even if they score from time to time, they're not going to score at a high enough rate. That, that's going to make that something that the Celtics will worry about. And for this lineup, injuries and health have definitely played a part in this, but we've seen them for a total of, NBA Stats has it at 12 minutes over the course of three separate games. Do you think that's something we're going to see more of as we approach the All-Star game and as we come out of the other end of the All-Star game when Brad's really starting to cement his, his rotations? I think that, Brad Stevens would like to get more data on that. Um, he did say that it was probably going to end up being a more situational based lineup, which I don't know. It might be, uh, it, again, they, they do lack size. And if they're not playing completely connected, if one of those guys and in this lineup, all it takes is one guy to be off. Um, the Celtics have a small margin for error when it comes to their defense, because if one guy is off, then the whole thing breaks down and it can break down pretty catastrophically because they don't have that center that's going to block a ton of shots. Even though um, Daniel Tice has, has been blocking shots at a pretty good rate, he's not doing it in like a Rudy Gobert type uh, erasing your mistakes type of thing. He's helping and blocking shots and, and getting them in very uh, very good spots. But your prototypical shot blocker is the guy that's going to be like, oh, this guy got burned. I'm going to, I'm going to meet him at the rim, and I'm going to challenge him and, and block his shot. Like that, the Celtics do not have that. So their strength lies in being connected, playing 100% effort around the perimeter. And if one of those guys isn't doing that, then the whole thing is terrible, and you might as well not play them. So I'm sure that if Brad senses any of that from any of his players – then he won't do it. But uh, I, would, I would anticipate over the course of January up until the All-Star game uh, that Brad will find his opportunities to try it to see if there's, if, if there's more data that can show that, you know, one of the things that we think is true or not true or whatever, because come playoff time, he's really going to need to have all the information he needs, uh, that, that all the information possible so he can – figure out what opportunities there are to play that lineup and what opportunities that he needs to take to, to put somebody else in there. So with the teams that are possible early playoff contenders that we may face, which of those do you feel like this lineup is going to be best suited against? Obviously, Philadelphia is probably where it's going to be the, the worst suited, same as Milwaukee. But do you think this lineup could do well against the Pacers, even though they've got Sabonis and Turner? Is there any teams like that that you feel could be susceptible to playing against this best five? Well, um, it, it, it's going to be tough. Let's see. Uh, of the playoff teams, I don't know how Milwaukee would do. Um, Milwaukee could throw a lot of size out there. They could throw both Lopez twins and Giannis and go super, super big and then really 
uh, try to, to test that. Uh, but again, even if they do, you, they also have to guard that team. And so it's hard for me to say, like, would, would this work against all of these other teams? Like, obviously, Philadelphia with Embiid because of his ability to post up makes it difficult. Milwaukee would make it difficult because of their, their size. But guarding – who does Lopez guard on that, in that scenario? Does he guard – I mean, Jalen Brown? <laughs> Put the two Lopezes on Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum or Gordon Hayward. Like, you're going to get destroyed. Like, that's not, that's not going to be a defensive lineup that works for them at all. So, Brad Stevens might challenge that. So, defensively, I don't know if that would work. But offensively, like, that might be a test of wills. Like, that might be an uh, irresistible object versus the uh, – or the Im- immovable object versus the irresistible force. And which one of those teams would blink first? Because the Celtics could just – run and move and and really pick that defense apart. And I think they could probably get better looks than Milwaukee could on their end of the floor. So it that's debatable. Um, it could work against Miami. Uh, Bam Adebayo is, is obviously a, a very good player, but he doesn't have a, a, a long – range shot like he's not going to take a lot of long jumpers so the Celtics don't have to worry about being spread out with him um he's not going to post up and and be a huge advantage there so I think he can work against Miami uh I think he can work against Toronto because they could really defend I mean Toronto's pick and roll heavy so it could really work against them Pacers I, I would I would definitely employ it against the Pacers because that would be the situation where it baits somebody like Miles Turner to try and post up. And of all of the options, a Miles Turner post up is something I'm willing to give up. So I, I would try that against everybody. And hell, I would even try it against Philly just to see if you can't wear Embiid out. If Embiid's going to try to post up, then go for it. And, and the advantage there is, A, he kind of punches himself out a little bit and – works hard enough in on offense to post up and bang and bang and bang that he gets tired. And then maybe later in the game uh, or later in that quarter, he kind of starts settling for jumpers. And then B, if he's posting up, even if he scores, if you take that ball out of the net and just turn and run right away, then he's the last guy back. And he's not exactly going to beat a lot of players up the floor. So again, I would challenge the, the other team's defense and put that lineup out there and see if they can't tire and beat out. Is he going to last a full eight-minute stretch with that lineup? I, I question whether he could actually do that. Um, he might be good enough in the first three or four minutes of it that Brad has to pull the plug, and that's certainly the risk. But I would be very interested to see if the Celtics could wear him out and, and towards the end of that, be able to go on a run and kind of negate him and, and really take advantage of that. So uh, I, I would throw it out there against just about every, everybody, but yes, obviously the Sixers do present the biggest challenge. A point you touched on during that, which was really interesting to me was how this team, this lineup, this best five lineup is actually really well designed to guard stretch fives and stretch fours. 
just because, as you say, they're not going to have to worry about being posted up as much because there's nobody trying to get down low. They're going to be avoiding that. And then on offense, there's three legit high-level playmakers. So the point of you making me a complete believer, I was very skeptical of this lineup to begin with just because of the size disadvantage. But then hearing you talk and looking at some of the offensive ratings when they are on the floor together, it does actually seem to be a very legitimate lineup that they can go to down the stretch. I don't think it's going to be what they'd use to what to close games out, though. Would you agree, or do you see this kind of evolving into that closing lineup? Yeah, I that is that is a good question. It, it could just be situational. Um, it may depend on the situation. Do they need to score? Are they down five and need to score? Then they may just throw this lineup out there and say, all right, well, we're going to take our, our chances on the other team hitting six of 10 shots, but we're going to go out there and hit 10 of 10 because we're going to be the most unstoppable offense on the floor. So they may find the opportunity there to say, all right, well, we can't, we can't have a non-scorer on the floor in that situation. So they won't put uh, Daniel Tice out there um, they won't put Ennis Cantor out there, especially like if, if you're not going to stop anybody. You you want to be able to like switch, cause some turnovers, maybe get out in transition, even if you're running off of makes. So that that would be a situation where they they want to put this this lineup out there. I think if they're down five or six, I mean if they're up five or six, then maybe they throw Daniel Tice out there uh, or or some other big in that lineup because. You want to get the rebound. You want to make sure you're cleaning out and closing out that uh, that defensive possession, uh, and and making sure that you're securing rebounds and getting back into your offense and and taking the time to set an offense. And at that point, you can just run a pick and roll and a pick and pop with Daniel Tice. And just as long as you're working through the shot clock and working through your progressions on offense, Daniel Tice isn't going to hurt you. He's going to set his picks. He's going to run the dribble handoffs. Uh, he's going to have a little bit of gravity, and he's capable of hitting shots uh, if, if he is left wide open. But a trading a miss for a miss, you're okay in, the, in that situation. So where that lineup is deployed may end up being situational. So that pretty wraps up pretty much wraps up all the questions I have around the best five lineup. I feel like you've done a fantastic job in helping everybody understand the negatives and positives and where to look out for that. The one question I wanted to ask you before you leave, and this is um, a topic on the podcast at the moment, is I'm trying to get as many people's thoughts on what they've seen from Romeo Langford as possible. So I just want to sure. uh, just get your ideas on what you've seen from Romeo. I think Romeo, first of all, uh, understands that he's he's going to get on the floor by being a solid defensive player. That's not something that he's been his whole life, and but it's it's shown uh, he's shown that he, it's it's something that he can do. So, um, so first and foremost, I'm impressed by his his defense, at least in the small stints that he's had. Um, I think from what I've seen is is a sort of like natural kind of feel for the game. He doesn't, he doesn't move too fast, which is something rookies do a lot. A lot of times rookies are so focused on, 
I have to be here. I have to be here. I have to be here. The offense, this is the offensive play. So I got to set my pick. I got to roll. I got to do blah, 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 blah. And they try to do it and they do it at a point where it's just a tick too fast. And it kind of is there. You hear that the, the term, the game slows down for these players. That's, that's where it slows down. Like you, you just go into a more natural flow. And I think if anything, Romeo has a more natural kind of feel for the game. Whether that how you know turns into something that manifests itself in good solid play and good minutes this season, I don't know. But um, he's shown the ability to hit some shots uh, both in Boston and in Maine. Uh, he's working on that on that jumper. They're they're trying to get that jumper uh, a little bit more consistent and solid. And, and so far, it's okay, not great. Um, but he's he doesn't seem to be afraid of, of the moment. Doesn't seem to be afraid of the situation out there. So um, early, early returns, as, you know, with almost no information, you got to go on something here. That's like more feel and more gut based. I, I see something there. I see building blocks there that can, can turn into something positive. That said, I saw building blocks in James Young too. And so uh, just because the building blocks are there doesn't mean that the player is actually going to build on them. So there is a natural basketball player somewhere within Romeo Langford. He seems willing to learn and work and do the things that are asked of him, which is good. And now he just has to persevere through his rookie season and get into summer league and next year, um, I wouldn't guess if I had to put money down, I wouldn't guess that he's going to have much of a role this year, but you know, thrust into some, some moments earlier on this season, he's, he's done okay. So, uh, I'll just say that, you know, Romeo has been okay and, and he's interesting enough where I, I can see, I can see that there's some potential future for him. That's, that's fine. That's great. I'm kind of in the same boat. I agree. I feel like some of the things he's doing at the moment are really good. I like his his hands. I like the way he tries to close out and dig. Offensively, he's looked quite willing to t- attack the rim, so I'm happy with that. But John, I just want to say thank you for coming on. It's been great. Uh, I'm sure the listeners are all going to appreciate your take on the best five lineup. And then uh, hopefully we can do this again at the end of the season and see how good Romeo was and how well this lineup actually worked. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thank you.